0: On DFBS with Have Trump's men blown the Korean peace deal? Are British pilots flying in a military muddle in the Middle East? It's Dambuster buster anniversary time. Will it ever lose its bounce? And why the military stands guard over the royal wedding? Will they or won't they? It's not clear whether the US President Donald Trump will meet the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong un, at a summit planned for the 12th of June. Pyongyang has threatened to cancel it if Trump's advisor John Bolton continues to push for unilateral nuclear disarmament. So, what is going on here? Professor Robert E. Kelly joins us from the Department of Political Science and Diplomacy at Busan University in South Korea. And Christopher Lee, BFBS defense analyst, is with me in the studio. Hello, to both of you, uh, Professor Kelly, has Donald Trump underestimated the North Koreans here?
1: Um, probably. I don't. I don't know if the president actually thinks enough about this stuff. To be honest, I think that's more sort of what it is, right? That the president just isn't taking this as seriously enough as he needs to. There's just an article today talking about in Time magazine talking about how the president isn't preparing for this. He hasn't even had a staff meeting about it. Um, this is sort of characteristic of the American president to kind of wing it and swing it his way through. And that's just not going to work with this. This is too complicated. The issues are too deep. The president's got to pay more attention. And as we learned, he's got to keep better control of the staff and what his staff are saying about this.
0: Yes, and we know that the summit between the two careers is now off. Is that or was that more important than the Trump-Kim meeting?
1: Um, no, I don't think it is. I mean, the big, the big inter-Korean one was a couple of weeks ago, um, and the, you know, the symbolism was big and the ceremony and the whole bit. Um, and now, now comes sort of the working level stuff where they actually try to sort of put some meat on the bones of the Panmunjom Declaration, which they actually start to develop sequences of what can be done. Um, the two sides need to sort of act in tandem, almost certainly on things like pulling back from the demilitarized zone, some forces or something like that. Um, and but then the larger strategic discussion really is the one between. The Americans in the North, right, and that's what everybody's really focused on. So I'm not too worried about. That. It's not good, obviously, but I'm not too worried about this cancellation of the Korean one.
0: Were you surprised?
1: Well, I mean, I don't want to sound sort of prescient, in you know, in in response. Sort of <laughs> retrodiction is easy. um I, Not too much, though, to be honest. I mean, I've been writing this for a while on my Twitter feed and and elsewhere that you know it was highly unlikely the North Koreans were going to go to zero. Um, we know that the North Koreans have told us for a long time that Libya is, in fact reason why they wanted to develop these nuclear weapons, right? Because Qaddafi gave them up in exchange for an American security guarantee, which we then cheated on during the Arab Spring. And um, we helped the revolutionaries overthrow Qaddafi. And then he met a fairly grisly end. So I was actually rather surprised that advisor Bolton was using the Libya model because that's sort of for the North Koreans. That's exactly the reason why they got these things. Um, But, you know, I think most of the people who sort of do what I do in the analyst community, broadly speaking, never thought the North Koreans were going to go to zero. I think Donald Trump kind of let himself get carried away with all this sort of Nobel Peace Prize stuff. Hmm. And uh, yesterday was kind of uh, the North Koreans pushing back.
0: Mm. Uh, What do you think uh, will appease North Korea? What do you think they want?
1: Well, I I think two things they want from from the summit. I think they want the recognition of actually being understood as a real independent distinct Korean state from South Korea right I mean North Korea and South Korea both have a a basic problem in that a a basic sort of existential legitimacy problem because there's a competitor Korean state right so um North Korea and of of course North Korea has lost that inter-Korean competition by most benchmarks right South Korea is healthier wealthier it's a nicer place to live it's open and tolerant you know all these kinds of things so for the uh, for the North Koreans um you know getting uh, legitimized right meeting the American president and actually being like taken for taken seriously as like a real state that's a major achievement um so i think it's recognition and then beyond that i think it's um security right they want to they want to make sure that the americans can't strike them and that's why they're going to hold on to these nuclear weapons
0: christopher lee do you think that america and north korea can come to any agreement over this
2: there are no signs that it can't but there are quite a lot of signs that it might not uh, and i think that is you know the issues are so Simple. I mean, one answer to, you know, what does North Korea want? It wants respect, for example. And it's something which every sign from Washington doesn't understand what it wants. The other thing we have to remember is, is, is if there were to be a deal with North Korea, if there was sort of, un- not a unification necessarily, but, it, you know, proceeding as, a, as an international country that you could have diplomatic relations with, etc., that would change the whole sort of image and some of the big issues of a huge chunk of the world. And I think that Kim Jong-un is very much part of that and is aware, or appears to be aware, that the role that he has, or potentially has, is far more important than President Trump understands.
0: Does North Korea have any support from anywhere else? Does it have any allies it can rely on in this situation?
1: Um uh does does North Korea have allies? In general generally speaking, I don't think so. I mean North Korea has always been sort of uh useful for for states that want to sort of upset the Americans, right? You can sort of recognize North Korea and talk to the North Koreans sort of put a finger in the eye of the Americans. Um you know the Russians have done this for a while since the end of the Cold War, right? Soviet power or Russian power has long since collapsed out here, but the Russians sort of keep on, you know, keeping the connections with the uh the North basically to sort of upset the Americans. Um, but no, I, I would argue that uh, that North Korea's relationships, uh, beyond China of course, that most of North Korea's relationships are primarily transactional. they are ways for the North Koreans to generate um, foreign currency. They do a lot of illegal stuff that in um, in Southeast Asia. They do a lot of military training in Africa and all this stuff is a way for them to raise hard currency because they can't export very much. Um, it's not clear to me actually why the North Koreans would meet the Indians.
2: Right. i tell you this, there's, there's one aspect of this, which, we'll get, if we go further, uh, which is not normally discussed. And that is that the capability of North Korea to develop nuclear um, programs, including um, missile programs as well, but certainly warheads, raises another point that in proliferation, we're not just talking about the North Koreans having X number of warheads, etc. We're talking about, in the future, North Korea having the technology which it could export to other countries, yeah, and therefore, you can you, you, you bring together a, a, a sign of proliferation, which is very rarely sort of uh, uh, understood.
0: Professor Kelly. Yes. I was just wondering whether or not um, there is some kind of room where North Korea could achieve something that's acceptable in, in its objectives in terms of developments of new nu- or nuclear, ca- nuclear capability which would be acceptable to the Americans is there anywhere any room for compromise
1: yeah um it's a narrow space it's a narrow space i mean if the you know if the americans take what's in america's direct interest which is getting rid of the icbms but then leave a local nuclear uh, local missile capacity that's basically going to force decoupling right where this North Koreans would retain the ability to nuclear strike South Korea China and Japan right but lose the ability to strike the United States in exchange for an American pullback or something like that I mean that that those are the terms that were sort of floating around the internet the other day um, I think the Americans would like that if that happens then the American alliance architecture in Asia is in real trouble. Um, my own sense is that you know, the North Koreans will never go to zero, so we have to find a way to deal with that. Um, and to, my response to that would be, okay, we can't get that from them, but then we shouldn't give them missile defense. Mm-hmm. Now, we all know that missile defense doesn't work very well, but at least missile defense gives us some kind of possibility to shoot some of that stuff down out of the sky. If the North Koreans are not going to go to zero, then we have to retain some kind of defensive capability, including you know, missile defense. And I would also argue um, uh, relevant air wings in, in South Korea that could sort of hit back fairly quickly, right? I mean if the North Koreans aren't gonna to go to zero, if they're gonna keep this air capacity, then we should we should keep that too. Um, my own sense is it would be much better if we actually went to the staff level, the working level, and you had diplomats sort of fighting over all these nitty gritty details in the next, you know, six months or a year, two years or something like that, trying to rush all of this through and try to figure out like a great big deal in the next four weeks, it's probably not gonna happen and if we do it, it's gonna to lead to errors. Mm,
0: you're talking to us of course from South Korea. Um, just how important is it going ahead for President Moon that there is some success in these discussions?
1: Uh, pretty important. Um, I mean, his approval rating is now over 80 percent. He got elected with just 41 percent, and a lot of that is connected to, to, uh, to, to the summit. Um, the summit's approval rating is over 90 percent. Um, you know, the, Donald Trump scared the daylights out of the South Koreans last year. Um And one of the great ironies of this is that the president thinks that the North Koreans have come to the table because of sanctions. But what actually has happened is that North Korea, Donald Trump drove South Korea to the table. Donald Trump scared the country so much last year that he's created a dovish consensus for a deal with North Korea in South Korea because South Koreans are scared of him. Mm. Right. And nobody ever talks about this. But that's actually what's going on. Right. I mean, Moon would not have 80 percent plus approval rating if it weren't for Donald Trump saying fire and fury last year because he only got elected with 41 percent. So, yes, the South mm. Koreans want a deal. And my concern is that they're actually so concerned about Donald Trump taking us back to fire and fury in the next six months that the summit collapses, that the South Koreans are actually willing to make more concessions than they might otherwise do, right? Because they're so afraid of backsliding to, you know, uh, destroy, totally destroy North Korea.
0: Mm. Interesting times. I'm sure we'll talk about this again. Thank you for your time today, though, Professor Robert E. Kelly from Busan University. Thank you for joining us. Sit Rep with K still to come back to bosnia why a former army officer turned gp has returned to srebrenica and the groom war will it be scarlet or navy blue for prince harry on saturday MPs on the Commons Defence Committee this week were told that combat flying in the Middle East has been full of dangers, not always involving the enemy. Here's Air Vice Marshal, Johnny Stringer, briefing MPs on the realities of Operation Shader.
3: I'm not sure we've actually ever built anything so sophisticated as what we've had to use in Iraq and Syria. So uh, if, I, if I could put you into the Air Operations Centre around the UK desk, you'd find a, uh, a team, uh, largely young men and women, Uh, imagery analysts, intelligence, uh, targeting support, legal advice, policy advice, uh, all overseen by a a relatively senior individual, taking a whole number of feeds that are coming in to assess first order, is it it a valid military target? Is it part of a target set that we're, we're going after? Does it satisfy the rules of engagement? Does it satisfy UK policy? Is there clear military advantage and all those levels are effectively a check and a balance on what we're doing. Do you have someone on the ground uh, giving you intelligence? Do you have forward air controllers as it were? So the coalition had, um, uh, if it's American-speak, it would be a JTAC, a Joint Tactical uh, Air Controller, so a team forward. Um, <clears throat> they are providing targeting information, but they are one of numerous feeds that are coming in. They may be the preeminent one, depending on the nature of the fight we're in. But we would take that, that would come through a strike cell at uh, uh, one of two gusting three locations in the theatre, and then the team on the desk, as I've just described, will be having that discussion with the strike cell to work out exactly what the target is, its validity, its compliance with UK UKROE, etc. So a very in-depth process, but done at pace as well, because you cannot hang around. But to give you a sense of where those checks and balances are, in, in a six-month period for one of our red card holders at the back end of 2016, of around a thousand requests that came in, um, he approved around 400 or so, and we actually struck about 280. So over 50% fail a test. By the way, part of that may well be because the situation on the ground has changed, and things do, you know do change. Mosel, highly dynamic fight, incredibly congested urban area, a lot going on, and making sure we were getting the calls right was an absolutely, you know, the guiding principle for UK targeting.
0: That was uh, Vice Marshal Johnny Stringer briefing MPs on the realities of Operation Shader. Christopher Lee, what do you think about what you heard there?
2: It's it's quite revealing, and um, and Johnny Stringer's, uh, Vice Marshal Johnny Stringer, has this reputation of uh, looking at somebody and saying, Has the ban- man that about to brief me, does he really know what he's about to brief on? And he, he, he nitpicks and nitpicks. And when you see the complexity in, let's say, a strike cell, an RAF strike cell, and so if you think that in, just in a six month period, which is not much, we have a public image of airplanes, aircraft from, say, Cyprus taking off, there they go, and there they come back, et cetera, and that's it. But when you think of 1,000, 1,000 requests to hit targets, to hit targets in, uh, in a theatre that could be changing by the hour, you've only got to suddenly discover that the target that you're going to has moved, it's moved 200 mm-hmm. yards, and that target is now sitting in in, in, a, in a hospital, so it's off. And so what happens, out of a 1,000, you get 200, mm. maybe 250, say, OK, we, we, we can go there. It is a changing war. And that's where the RAF has probably had to fight uh, a far more complex war than, say, the Americans who don't have the same sort of uh, uh, adjusting rules of engagement, for example, that the RAF has and has introduced quite exclusively.
0: All right, Christopher, stay with us. Now, a former army colonel who is now a GP has returned to Bosnia to see how the health of the people living there has been affected by the war more than 20 years on. Dr Jonathan Leach is a PTSD specialist and visited the country with the British charity Remembering Srebrenica. He told me the different communities there are still very divided.
4: So the people we spoke to were all very, very pleasant, very hospitable, which is what you normally find. Um, I I think the concerns that many of us had was that um, many of the tensions, which obviously brought the war about to start with, uh, were really only just underneath the surface. So, for example, in some parts, for example, you might have one school building, but in the morning it would be Bosniat, which is the sort of Muslim school in the morning, and then the afternoon it would be a Serb school in the afternoon. And actually that causes some considerable concerns in terms of understanding, you know, the understanding between the various communities and actually continues to, you know, ensure that in the long term that the tensions remain. And and so in some respects it was Uh, it was deeply depressing that this was still underneath the surface but of course this has been going on for decades and centuries.
0: One of the infamous events of the Civil War was the massacre of Srebrenica in which 8,000 men and young boys were killed. You met a doctor who was at the scene helping people um, on this trip, didn't you? What did he tell you? And doctor to doctor, what did you learn?
4: So I met Dr. Pilaf. um, We spent quite a lot of time with him, and um, you know he was a doctor in um, uh, Srebrenica during the the, the, uh, the shelling and uh, the shootings. Um, they were completely cut off, um, and I tried to reflect how I would be. You know, i would seen war injuries during my service career, and I had access to painkillers. I had access to helicopters. I had access to antibiotics, the full things that you would expect from a a NATO country, he had none of those. I had none of those. And trying to imagine how I would have coped or anybody else would have coped in terms of uh, doing an amputation by candlelight with no pain relief or having to open somebody's tummy or open somebody's chest because that's what you had to do. Just indescribable. Just indescribable in terms of the things he was doing. And also just the terrible way that that would have affected, you know, the patients who he was necessarily needing to operate on, who were so badly injured.
0: Mm. You are an expert in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Srebrenica obviously targeted men. What about the women who survived?
4: So throughout the the Bosnian war, there was a, a, a systematic... Uh, sexual abuse and rape of women, Um, and during this trip we met quite a few consultant psychologists who were treating women who had unfortunately suffered this, and also we met some women, for example there was one lady who had set up a a charity, a very inspirational lady when, when I explained what she'd been through, because she had been, she'd suffered rape three times, but also her daughter, which she observed. And so, you know, just some of the most terrible things that you could imagine.
0: Oh, and you say that um, this is a two-way thing, your trip, and that you can offer back advice and support on how to treat people who've been through uh, mental uh, torture, really, mental stre- uh, stress. What kind of advice will you be offering?
4: So um, I, I have a, a, the a privilege, actually, to be on the group with the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, Nights as it's called, so we're in the process of reviewing um, all the treatments for PTSD. So this is involved a, an inter, a review of all the international evidence, all the journals, the studies, everything like this. And we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of these. So uh, we'll be publishing this later this year. And I've said that what we'll do is that we'll offer that to them. And it'll be in the public domain, but I'll point them to it. Um, because there are lots of ways of PTSD that work. Um, uh, treatments that work. There are also some where the evidence just isn't there um, and in terms of actually concentrating on the things that work would be probably where uh, I'd be recommending. Um, th- they were doing a lot of the things, as I said, that we already do in this country, particularly within the Veterans um, uh, Mental Health Service. So it's, it, it, they're, they're on the, r- you know, the, the, right, the right area. Mm. Um, but Just a deeply humbling experience in terms of You know what they've been through, and also the fact that they're doing this with very, very little resource in comparison to
0: the United Kingdom. That was Dr. Jonathan Leach. It's 75 years since the Royal Air Force bombed three dams in Nazi Germany during the Second World War. The infamous Dam Busters raid was carried out by 617 Squadron and used a new technology, the bouncing bomb. Well, let's talk to Steve Darlow, who is an ambassador for the RAF Benevolent Fund, as well as a Bomber Command historian and author. Hello, Steve. Um, This raid has gone down in history as British victory against the Germans, but what did it actually achieve?
5: Well, I think it's important to look at the raid within the the context of the Battle of the Ruhr that was taking place at that time and the Bomber Command's attack against the German industry in the Ruhr. And, of course, industry requires water. And these reservoirs at that point in May, they were at their fullest. So if they could breach those dams, it was going to have an impact and two of the dams were breached. um, Affected hydroelectric power. Um, There was damage to industry as well. Probably if it had been followed up with some conventional bombing while the repairs were going on uh, the, the damage would have been to a, a greater extent. But um, in terms of the objectives of the raid, well, I mean, it was extraordinary. They did manage to breach those those two dams and it did impact um, the German war machine. And it was all part of shifting the air battle from the skies above this country to the skies over Germany.
0: Yes, and I mentioned that infamous bouncing bomb. Can you explain yeah. the technology behind it? How was it developed exactly?
5: Well, originally, um, Barnes-Wallace, the inventor, he was sort of working with, with the Admiralty, were looking for shipping, and they couldn't attack this... The dams through the conventional bombing, it would have to be too precise, and there were torpedo nets protecting the dams and so they had to really place nine thousand pounds worth of explosives against the the dam's wall. And uh, ingeniously, Barnes Wallace came up with the idea of skipping uh, this rotating, spinning uh, sort of kettle drum um, across the water, so that it reached the actual dam wall, sunk, and then uh, then exploded at a pre predetermined depth.
0: Why is it, do you think, that the story of the Dam bust has got such legendary status, even a film being made, of course?
5: It, it's it's a remarkable story. There were two books, Paul Brickle wrote his book and then uh, Guy Gibson commanded 617 Squadron, he did Enemy Coast Ahead, and it's just got all the elements of a great story. There's the ingenuity of Barnes-Wallace, there's the bravery and the, the airmanship of the men who actually uh, flew that mission. And, and, I mean, there's the sad side of it as well, of course, is that 53 young... Young lads didn't make it. um, Make it back from the raid. So it's um, it's a great story. I think um, I I think there's one thing, Steve. When you
2: look at the film, which is shown every year, isn't Mm. it, or somewhere, uh, it's only in the film. Very rarely in the discussions of history that record what you've just said, and that's the number of guys that didn't make it back. Mm. It was a it was a blistering, blistering shock. Uh, to bomber command, the cost of that raid, which they'd sort of anticipated. By the way, just as a uh, as an aside, um, Barnes Wallace, when I was terribly young, took me outside to the lake near uh, near Guildford, uh, and we did what every par and every grandpa has since done. We took flat stones, and he showed me how to skim them across the water. And you see that happening. Barnes we- Wallace did yeah
3: yeah <laughs> oh, <really>? yeah <laughs> really? yeah
2: and you see this, you know I was i I, I could hardly sort of lift the damn thing, never sorry, I could hardly lift the thing uh, in, in, in instead of anything else, but it was a remarkable thing you you stood there and sort of looked and said, Well, what did you really have to do with it?
0: Uh, just a question, Christopher, how many skims did you get how, how well did you do?
2: I did very, very badly, in fact, <laughs> i have since done very badly when I've actually done it with my own children. But the point was, there was this man who was quite an insignificant part. Now, when you look at the film, when you read Paul Paul Brickhill, for example, and I suppose Guy Gibson, but more Paul Brickhill, um, and if this is right, Steve, you get the impression how insignificant a character, how insignificant he was as a person. He wasn't part of this heroic sort of stanza that they normally put on display.
0: Steve Darlow, at the time, how much recognition did the Dambusters actually get?
5: Well, immediately afterwards, the the press press went to town on it. They really had an opportunity to to present this victory. This is May nineteen forty three. The Germans are suffering setbacks at this stage, but so by no means is the war over. It's another year before we get to to D Day. So here was an opportunity to show that we were we were still fighting back, and and we could in, seriously damage their, their war machine.
2: I tell you, it's one other thing. Put it but in modern context: the Ruhr. How many civilians would die was one of the discussions. Now, today, mm. when we're thinking about so-called collateral
5: damage all the time...
0: What was the casualty? Uh, what was the casualty figure uh,
5: About 1,300 yeah. civilians, and a, a, a substantial number of those were foreign workers. Yeah, mm.
2: and you see, when you get more than 1,000 people, if you, if you took a plan in now and said, sir, this is what we want to do, uh, they would say how many will die and it was that period also of as you say shifting the war from, from the Blitz etc which, which was over by then but shifting the war and that's when you get people starting to say Obama Harris and people like that say, "Well, say actually uh, Dresden might be possible mm. and so the whole concept which today you would not get
0: What know? do you think Steve was the, the most impressive thing about the Dambusters raid?
5: the air, The airmanship is just remarkable to fly at low level from the Dutch coast all that way across Germany to line up on those dams, avoiding the land spits, place the bomb from the right height, from the right distance, mm-hmm. in the right place, and actually be able to breach two of those dams. It's just remarkable airmanship, and and the bravery as well. I mean, Gibson circled round and came in with some of the, the other crews to mm. to draw fire from them. Um, but yes, as we know, you know, fifty three young lads. Mm-hmm. Lads didn't didn't make it back. We had a very uh, interesting, very poignant ceremony at the London Bomber Command War yesterday. The RAF Benevolent Fund hosted it with the laying of fifty-three pairs of gloves mm-hmm. at the memorial, and that, and that really brought it home. And
0: there's a special screening of the film tonight, isn't there?
5: There is at the Royal Albert Hall again, with uh, supporting the Benevolent Fund. They've remastered it, big screen. It's being simulcast across the nation. Glenn Miller Orchestra are going to be playing, so mm-hmm. I think it'll be, it'll be quite an evening.
0: Well, good yes. to speak to you, Steve Darlow. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Now, Prince Harry will marry Meghan Markle, as if you didn't know, in St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle on Saturday. It's the people's wedding, but the military closest to the prince will be on parade. Christopher Lee, they're not the people you usually see at these state occasions, are they?
2: No, it's very small. It's 250. Um, but the RAF regiment is there because he is an com- honorary commandant of the RAF regiment. There's a small ships and dividers group now, most people, even in the Navy, has never heard of them. But that is because, again, he is the commandant of that uh, that group. Uh, the Royal Marines, they've got a small group. there, 25. Um, they are uh, the sort of people you normally see at Royal Weddings playing. Uh, it's, their, it's their band. But these guys are standing guard, and he is the new, well, relatively new, last year, Captain General uh, uh, sort of, uh, uh, of the Royal Marines... Uh, he's Colonel of the Irish Guards, the most junior of the Guards Regiment, and also, of course, his own household cavalry, although he was a dragoon in mm. Princess Anne's guarding. Uh, she is the Colonel of the dra- Dragoons.
0: Now, a lot of people who will be tuning in to watch it on television want to see what the bride is wearing, but what about the groom? What uniform will he wear?
2: I've I just got a small, small bet Go on, on As this. ever. Well, as, as ever. I've got a small bet that he'll actually wear, for the first time, to be worn on an occasion like this I, I suspect he might wear the Royal Marines uniform mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's alright it's, it's not as flashy as the Irish Guards which reflecting
0: he did. his new role of course
2: well, it's a more, a, a more modest role and a, and a quieter role and no billiards will be played but the point being is that this is the first time that it will be he is now the uh, Captain General uh, of, of the Royal, Royal Marines. And the Royal Marines are pleaded priest about this, especially as we've got a defence review coming up in July and there's a whole bunch of people are saying, oh, there's a thousand of them going to be sacked.
0: And you believe that symbolically the importance of this is that the, the Royalty's command and the military's first allegiance will be on display on Saturday?
2: Yeah, the Household Cavalry, which is also there, which was he was part of the Household Cavalry when he joined the army, although he was a dragoon, Household Cavalry is the oldest regiment in the the British Army. In 1610, they brought back the... or Sorry, 1600, they brought back the... uh, 1660, let's get this right. In 1660, they brought back to England King Charles II from exile after, you know, the Cromwell thing. What they were doing, in fact, they were bringing back the monarchy and they were safeguarding the monarchy And there is a sense, if you talk to people in the household cavalry, they haven't forgotten that there have been 16 monarchs since 1660. Fifteen have thanked the military for keeping them in power. This is a sense of duty. Not as politicians see the monarch at all.
0: Been invited, Christopher?
2: Just the once. <laughs>
0: That's all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS Rep and never miss an episode by subscribing to this show as a podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Speak to you this time next week. Bye-bye for now.
3: The best of British news. Sport
4: and entertainment. For the British forces overseas. This is BFBS
5: Radio 2. The military have